Amen. Well, today we are back in the book of Lamentations, and we are going to be digging into chapter 4 today. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn there with me, Lamentations chapter 4. And as you're doing that, uh, let me just set the stage uh, for today. The book of Lamentations records the incredible grief and pain following the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people by the Babylonians in the year 587 BC. And and for the most part, it's a difficult and painful read because it records so much difficulty. It records so much pain. You see, the destruction of Jerusalem, it felt like a complete severing from God's promises and a complete loss of identity for God's people, the Israelites. It was catastrophic. Okay, that's at a minimum, we can say that. And it's out of, out of that deep-seated grief. It's out of that overwhelming uh, decimation and ruin that Lamentations was written. It's written as this communal mourning, this communal lament, this communal cry saying, why, God? Why? How? How how could this happen to us? And you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons uh, to not just like this book, but but to love this book. But one of the reasons I love the book of Lamentations, or I've been growing to love the book of Lamentations, is actually because of what the book does not do. What it does not do. See, last week, if you were here with us for Lamentations chapter 3, if you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But last week, we, we saw or reached this hope-filled high point, right? Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are dark. They are depressing. They're sad and severe. And then chapter 3 gives us this breath of fresh air. It's beautiful. In the midst of all this ruin, all this chaos, all this destruction, the author declares to God, great is your faithfulness. But then as you turn over to chapter 4, we actually somewhat surprisingly descend back into darkness. We go back into grieving. We go back into pain. And so what we're going to learn is that lamentations actually does not resolve the pain of God's actions quickly and does not resolve all this conflict uh, neatly. This book actually does not answer all of our questions. That could be frustrating for some of us. It, It doesn't communicate things in a way that are tidy, neat, and comfortable. In fact, it shows us that the promise of who God is and the pain of life actually sort of uniquely coexist together. And the reason I'm thankful for that is because life itself, even the Christian life, isn't always neat and tidy, right? We have questions. You and I who are following Jesus, we experience true pain. We face genuine emotions and fears. 
Suffering, suffering, whether it's innocent or whether it's deserved, does not follow a a specific formula. Even when we know the answers, it can still be hard to process, which is why the practice of discipline or the practice and discipline of lament is so helpful. Because lamenting gives a voice to our emotions. Lamenting gives us a a voice to our struggles, our pain, while simultaneously directing our hearts towards God. As I've said throughout this series, lament mourns the thing that has happened. It mourns the, the event, the situation, the circumstance, but it also anchors us in what we believe all while we look expectantly to the day when God will make all things right. So, with all that said, here's where we're headed today. What we're going to see in chapter 4 is that God's mercy comes after brokenness. That's really our bottom line for today. God's mercy comes after brokenness. The hope of chapter 3 is still there. Right? It's, it's lingering. It's still true. But there is this very strong emphasis in chapter 4 of how broken God's people really are. And, at, and that at times, God breaks us so that he can rebuild us. See, God looks for the broken we, we know this all throughout the scriptures. It's one of the central themes, actually, that God uses those who are broken. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What does the psalmist say? He says, The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Or what about Psalm 34? I think a lot of us are familiar with these beautiful words. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her, out of them all. And let me say this as well. By brokenness, what do we mean? What do I mean specifically for our time together today? By brokenness, I mean when when God removes the, the objects of our trust such that we place our hope in him, so that we are driven to move towards him. It's, it's the times in life where he, he kicks away the crutches of life, if you will, so that we are moved to lean on him and lean on him alone. Right? Now, we, we know that sometimes brokenness can come into our lives because of our sin. Sometimes brokenness comes because of others' sin. And other times in life, brokenness can come just because of the general brokenness of our world. But regardless, 
the result is always the same. Brokenness leads us to our need for mercy. So today, what I'm going to do for us is just take the time to walk us through chapter 4. And then after that, I'm going to attempt to answer one big question that I believe comes out of all of this. And then we're going to end our time together by centering our hearts on the gospel and the mercy of our gracious God. Okay, sound good? Even if it doesn't, that's where we're going. So we turn now to verse 1 of chapter 4. And we see it starts similarly to chapter 1 and to chapter 2, how the author began those two chapters with that word, how. And so we're meant to be mindful that the whole book is a lament, but we're back to deep lamenting now, okay? And then we see the, uh, the author highlight all of these things that have been destroyed that the Israelites had placed their hope in, starting with their culture, okay? Starting with their culture in verses 1 through 11. You see, we know that Israel was very proud in general, <laughs> But specifically, they were very proud of their status as God's chosen people. And certainly, uh, there was something, none of us could deny this, there's something very special about the nation, special about their temple, special about their status and place in, in the world. But now we see that that glory, that fame of Israel has completely faded. And we could see here, or we could say here, that the glory years are gone. And so verse one captures this reality really well. It starts like this. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Now, we know from scholarship that there are two possible meanings here. In a more literal sense, this could just be talking about the city's destruction, okay? We know Jerusalem, but specifically, the temple itself was filled, lined with gold, more than you could ever imagine. But now, we know that the city and the temple itself is lying in rubble, and what's left of the city, what's left of the temple is just covered in dirt and dust. And so, what the author could be saying is just that, that the city no longer gleams as a beacon of light right, to the world. The gold is gone, literally. The other alternative, though, and, and the one that I think is more likely here, is that the gold here and the holy stones, see that phrase there, actually serve as a figure of speech for the people of Israel themselves. Again, we, we know the, the people once considered themselves to be precious, set apart, superior to the other nations of the world. And so this here is now expressing their humiliation, that these people, this nation has now been brought low, if you will. The, the nation is no longer sitting in the seat of divine favor they and their city have grown dim. And I believe that verse 2 actually supports the idea of this gold and holy stones being the people itself because it actually says there in verse 2, the precious sons of Zion 
worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. So, so you see there, the people have gone from, what the author's saying, is that the people have gone from being pure gold to earthen pots, earthen vessels, he says. And if you want to know what that is, an earthen pot was simply this. It's just the most common container, common of all containers, um, in that culture. There was nothing special about them at all. I was trying to think of what we could compare it to, and I could come up with two. I thought of a Tupperware container or one of those Ziploc freezer bags. Okay? Earthen pots are cheap. They are disposable. And they are more important for what they contain, okay? not for the vessel itself. So the point being that Israel had fallen from being a valuable family heirloom, if you will, precious, to now being just commoners, a common vessel, nothing special. And in light of that, we see in verses 3 through 4 that the people of Israel actually begin to turn on one another. It's tragic. They are cruel, we're going to see, to one another. It says there, even jackals, that's a word, or if you know what a jackal is, if you don't, it's a wild dog. Okay, even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wild. Oh, that's an interesting thing for our culture. They're bad like ostriches. Okay. Does that mean? Well, I had to actually look this up and research, and like, I just did, saw way too many pictures of ostriches this week. But... Okay, but ostriches didn't know this, but they are actually known, the mothers are actually known once they lay the eggs, they leave and they leave the, the eggs unprotected. So whether or not the egg survives, up to chance, I guess. Um, and that's what he is saying here, that they've been cruel like ostriches, right? The, the, the tongue, he says, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. In other words, everyone is looking out for themselves. And then we see another tragic contrast here as we work our way through the book. By the way, I hope you have a copy of God's word in front of you. If you don't, there's probably one in the seat back or pocket in front of you because we're moving through these verses quickly. But we see another tragic contrast. These people who, who used to feast on the best food, these people are clothed in the, in the finest garments, particularly in the days of King Solomon. They are now poor. They are now beaten. They are now broken. We see that clearly in verse 5. And then the author does something extremely harsh because he actually has the audacity to compare Israel's destruction here to the destruction and punishment of Sodom. And you have to understand, up to this point, Sodom's reputation, Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom's reputation was the worst of the worst. Like, they are the definition, 
used as the definition of rebellion, sinner, all throughout the Old Testament and sometimes even in the New. And we know that in light of that, God's annihilation of them was so deeply harsh and severe. He literally just rains down fire from heaven on them because the people will not repent even though they are warned time and time and time again. But verse 6 says, here for Israel, this punishment is greater. It's meant to be so dark, so intense for these cultural Jews, being told we are worse than those in Sodom, those in Gomorrah. And we won't go through it all, we just don't have the time. But verses 7 through 9 just keep describing how Israel's culture has been brought to ruin. Their superior lifestyle is gone, it says. Their elevated status is no longer. In fact, no one even recognizes them even more. That's what it says. They have been brought to being nothing. The people are actually saying, can you imagine getting to this point? They're actually saying, it would have been better to be slaughtered, killed by the Babylonians, than to go through all of this, than to try to handle all of this. And why? Why did this happen? Well, you know the answer if you've been here, because we've talked about this in chapter 1. We talked about it even more in chapter 2. It was briefly mentioned in chapter 3, and now we're reminded of it again here in chapter 4 in verse 11. Why did all this happen? It says in verse 11, the, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. So what was the cause behind the destruction of Israel's culture? Or who was behind it? We are told it is God. It is the Lord. That he was disciplining, disciplining his own children for their rebellion. And look there. Look there. It says that Israel had come apart at the seams. Down to their foundation, they are ruined, it says, meaning, again, the emphasis here is on their culture, that their culture, their roots are destroyed. The culture is lost. This once great nation that the, the culture, the world looked to is now broken. And then what the author does is he moves from the culture being brought low to the leadership of Israel being brought low. So again, everything Israel was putting their hope in is being ruined. Their culture and now their leaders. And we see this in verses 12 through 16. Now, what we know in general, I think a lot of us do this, including myself, but we see it all throughout the scriptures, throughout world history, that when people are in crisis, when they face a crisis, we as people often tend to look to leaders to deliver us, to give us hope, to lead us to better days, right? That's why when you see like presidential slogans, it's always about better days, right? Like hope is coming or should I even say it? make America great again, right? There's, 
but there's always, it's always hope-filled statement. Change, right? True change, right? We're looking for leaders to give us better days we don't like our, when we don't like our present circumstances. But Israel's leaders, okay, what we see here is that they have been not only completely discredited, okay, but they are actually run out of the city. In fact, the people now have no confidence in those who should lead them and the people who should give them vision. And of course, we know through the scriptures where there's no vision, people are in chaos, confusion. In fact, look at what the author says about Israel's fall and failure. Verse 13 could not be clearer about this, by the way. Look at verse 13. Why did he bring all this destruction, punishment to Israel? It says this. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So what is this saying? Well, it's saying that the leaders of Israel did not help the people go back to God when they should. They didn't hold the people to the law. The leaders of Israel, they were dismissive of, of sin. They took God's grace for, for granted. And in fact, they were guilty of horrific sins themselves. Okay, we know that historically, that the leaders, when they were um, hearing a theology they didn't like or something they disagreed with, the people who were trying to call people back, they were actually putting those people to death. Look at how bad the leaders of Israel had become. It says of them this, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. These people these leaders who are supposed to be holy, set apart, an example of godliness and godly living, are now so corrupt, we are told they are so dirty, filthy, that the people, the nation, actually kick them out of the city. You know, we know this, right? We know this from the law in the Old Testament, that it was the role of the leaders, specifically the priests, it was their role to go around the city, protecting it, saying to the people, away from you, stop sinning, you are unclean, do not touch that person or leave the city and get yourself right and then you can come back. They do, this was their role, part of their job to protect God's people, but now those very same words, away, unclean, do not touch, are being said about them. It's so sad. And so we are told in verse 16 that the Lord, as a result of that, that he scattered the people. The face of the Lord that was meant to bring blessing to the people, the face of the Lord that was meant to shine upon them, we are told in number six, is now bringing judgment upon them. And the leaders of Israel are largely responsible for this downfall. It's a humbling text. And look at this. We read that even the king himself, the king of Israel himself, could do nothing. We see that in verse 20. Look at this with me. It says, the breath of our nostrils, okay, that's, by the way, a term for the king, 
If you see that phrase in ancient Near East literature, specifically even through the Bible, you see that phrase, breath of our nostrils. Okay, that is in reference to their king. He says, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. This here, we know specifically, actually, it's in reference to King Zedekiah. We know that at the uh, invasion of Jerusalem by Babylon, that King Zedekiah attempted to run. Okay? He doesn't fight. He attempts to flee. Flee the city. Escape the invasion. But he was captured. This was the king who the people of Israel had placed their hope in. Remember, they wanted a king. Israel had always wanted kings. God wasn't enough for them. They wanted a king like the other nations. This king that they could, as it says here, live under the shadow of his care. Uh, living under the, uh, under the shadow of his power. That man has now come to ruin. And so we learn the culture was degraded. Their leaders were dis- discredited. There is nothing left inside Israel to hope in. Within Israel, there's no hope. And so, what about outside of Israel? It's so, so ironic. God's people turn outside of Israel, but they do. Is there any help outside of Israel? Any hope to be found outside of Jerusalem? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this is part of Israel's pattern time and time again, that they were quick, very quick, to rely on neighboring nations to get them out of times of trouble. When they were facing hurt or hardships or pains, they would leave God in a second and turn to other things, other people, other idols, other countries. Time after time, time after time, the people of God are warned not to put their trust in other nations, to instead just look to God. He will take care of you. But they fall and fail. They compromise. And during Babylon's takeover of Jerusalem, it's no different. We actually know that they turn to the nations again, that the people of Israel actually first look to Egypt, that they put their hope in Egypt. They begged Egypt to come to their defense to to rescue them, to conquer the Babylonians, this people that they were enslaved to for hundreds of years. Help us. But of course, that doesn't happen. Verse 17 tells us, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watch for a nation which could not save. That's Egypt. There is no help coming from them. And so they look to the other side and they turn to Edom. Another nearby country, if you're not familiar with Edom or the Edomites, We know that they were descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's twin brother. And the Edomites had centuries and centuries of conflict with the Israelites. They hated each other in so many ways, trying to conquer one another all throughout the history of the two nations. So the question is, 
do they help? <laughs> Would they be willing to come to the aid of Israel? And of course, the answer is not a chance. In fact, not only do they not help Israel, they actually look over at Israel and gloat over their destruction. They mock God's people. We learn that they are rejoicing here in Lamentations 4, that they are glad this happens. See, you get what you deserve, in other words. We see that in verse 21. And actually, Psalm 137, verse 7, tells us about this event as well. The psalmist says this, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, that's 587 B.C., how they said, so this is what the Edomites were saying, to the Babylonians as they were setting Jerusalem on fire. They were saying, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Destroy those people. Give them what they deserve. So again, the overall message in all of this, in Lamentations 4, the overall message being brought forth is so clear. Everything that Israel had ever placed their hope in, other than God, has now failed to come through. Their culture can't save them. Their great leaders cannot rescue them or save them. Not the priests, not the elders, not even their king. All broken. And now, the neighboring nations, we are told, we see that there is no hope in them as well, no hope in them in them as well. In fact, in the last two verses of chapter four, we see, we learn that Edom's judgment is coming as well. So, in other words, we're meant to be told here that there is no hope in a nation that is hopeless. Okay, make sense? So every crutch, every help has been now removed. The people are broken. They are helpless. Chapter 4, again, is so clear about that. That there is just one answer, one hope. And of course, we've been told in chapter 3, it's the Lord. One hope, it's the Lord. And we've been talking about this. And I want to remind you of the gospel again. I want to talk about his mercy. But before I, I do that, I feel like particularly in this sermon, particularly here in chapter 4, in light of chapter 4, that it's important that I attempt to answer uh, one important, or what I'll say is one big important question for us. And that is this. Okay, one question I want to help us answer today. How can I know, how can I know if the brokenness I'm experiencing in my life is due to my sin? How can I know if the brokenness that I'm experiencing in my life is due to my sin? I think that's a, a really major question that comes out of the book of Lamentations. And actually, um, it's a question that a few of you have asked me specifically, in light of this sermon series. And that question, this question, in light of Lamentations, makes a lot of sense, right? Because what we see happening here in Lamentations is very clearly God's discipline 
of Jerusalem due to their sin. Right? That's all over this book. And we saw it again in verse 13 today, that God punished his people due to their sins. The people of Israel suffered because of their leaders' sins. Both were true. But what about when we suffer, personally? Uh, what about when we experience brokenness in our own lives, in our, in our everyday struggles? How do I know, how do we know if the brokenness that we face in our lives is God's doing or it's due to my sin? (laughs) Because we've all been there, right? We've all had these questions, I think. We've all had these thoughts. I know we have, right? Maybe you get sick. Uh, Maybe you get in a car accident. Uh, Maybe you get laid off from a job. You lose a family member. You're struggling with having children. You're suffering through a really difficult relationship. Maybe you have a a very long period of of difficult singleness. It's easy, very easy for us in those big and small moments for these subtle questions to begin to arise within us. Is this all happening because of something that I've done? Or this one, what did I do to deserve this? And and, and to that, let me start by saying this, okay? And you're not going to necessarily love what I have to say. (laughs) But hear me out, okay? Hear me out. When it comes to our lives, unlike in Lamentations, We often don't know if our suffering, the brokenness that we deal with in our everyday lives, is due to our sin. We often don't know. And I say often here because sometimes, sure, it is very clear, it should be clear, that we do things that are sinful. We do things that are outside of God's will and his ways. And there are actual consequences for that sin in our life. And beyond that, there are other times where the Holy Spirit just speaks to us, convicts us. And in those times, we can be sure. We can know it's time to change. It's time to go another direction. But in general, in many cases, it is very hard to filter through my happenings in regards to it being a result of my sin, the sin of others, or the sin of the world. Just the result of simply living in a broken world. Or, or maybe it's a combination of all of those things together. And so let me just say, first of all, We often do not know. That's the answer. But second, we have to take that as a warning, as a word of caution, that we need to be careful. Otherwise, we might be assigning blame to God or assigning blame to ourselves or assigning blame to other people when that blame is not due. And by the way, we actually see an example of that happening in the scriptures. If you remember the story of Job, That's exactly what happens to Job by his friends. His friends see Job's life totally destroyed. 
he literally loses everything. He goes through all of this pain, all of this brokenness. And so his friends come to Job and they say, what have you done, right? It must, you must be a horrible person. You must be living in this like hidden dark sin for all this to happen to you. You're to blame, Job, when Job actually, we're told very clearly in the scriptures, did nothing wrong at all. And so I'll say this. There is a lot we don't know. A lot we don't know. But there is also so much that we actually do know. Our problem is, as followers of Jesus, is that I think, and I'm, I'm in the same boat as you here, I'm concluding myself, is that we often get so bogged down in what we don't know that we miss out on what we actually do know. And so let me focus in, on a minute, in for a minute on what we do know when it comes to this issue. What do we know about this issue? Our brokenness as it relates to our sin, the sin of others, and the sin of the world, sins of the world. Well, number one, and none of these are going to be on the screen, so you just have to listen or take good notes. Number one, we know that if we have a living trust in Jesus Christ, this is what we know. Without a shadow of a doubt, our suffering, our heartache, the brokenness that we face in our life is not a form of wrath or condemnation or vindictive punishment from God. Never. The scriptures could not be more clear on that point, that there is no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And no, in Romans 8, by the way, that's where I'm getting that from, no, by the way, means no there. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment, no wrath-filled anger from God towards those who follow Jesus anymore. And why? Because on the cross... Jesus took our punishment. He bore all of the wrath that we deserved. He was condemned in our place. Right? So we need to please, please hold on to this truth. That in your life, your pain, your difficulties, your struggles are not ever due to God's condemnation towards you. Second, we can also know we can also know for certainty that God always uses our brokenness for our good. If you don't remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, we know that uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the sons of Jacob, he is betrayed by his other brothers. He is sold into slavery. In jail, he is lied about, he is forgotten, he is slandered. But by God's grace, we learn that Joseph, in the midst of all of that, he actually thrives. And because of God's providence and hand of blessing on Joseph's life, we see that he actually moves into, he rises up in the midst of Egyptian culture uh, to a position of great power, second in charge of the entire nation of Egypt, by the way. Well, he gets in that position. We learn that there's a famine in the land, a great famine. Uh, we learn from there that Abraham, I'm sorry, and his, his, uh, sorry, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob, his other sons, the family, they're suffering. 
the world is hungry. And so they go to Egypt asking for help, right? It sounds familiar, right? They go to Egypt asking for help. But this time, they're going to get help because Joseph is in charge. So Joseph's brothers show up. They need help. And Joseph appears to them for the very first time. They have no idea what God has done through Joseph. So what does Joseph do in that first encounter? Does he imprison them? Does he yell at them, even? Does he say, hey, look at me now, right? Doesn't say that either. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't seek for revenge. He says these amazing, beautiful words to them. I believe it's Genesis 50. He says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me. You sinned against me. You wanted my life ruined. You broke me. You meant evil. God meant it for good. He used all that brokenness, all that despair for good. And so what this tells us is that if we have a living trust in Jesus, we can know that God is working all things for our good. And that means our unearned pain and even our self-inflicted suffering, all of it. Your unearned brokenness, your earned brokenness, all of it, all of it, God promises to use it, to use our situations, to use that brokenness to make us more like him for his glory. He promises to make us more loving, promises to make us more patient, promises to make us more peaceful, promises to make us more gracious. God uses our brokenness to shape us to love him more and to shape us to love others more. Which, by the way, by the way, is why the Apostle James tells us in his letter that we can and should count it all joy when we face trials and sufferings of many kinds, right? He says there in James chapter 1, all of our suffering is always ultimately a tool in the hands of God for our transformation, to become like him. And so we rejoice in that truth then, amen? We don't have joy in the trials themselves. Don't mishear that. We don't have joy in the suffering itself. We have joy because of whose hands those trials and sufferings are in. Well, what else do we know? What else do we know? Well, we also know that through our suffering and our brokenness, part of God's aim is actually always to get our attention. You know God wants your attention? Always he wants your attention. He wants your eyes to be fixed on him. And let me show you what I mean by this. Get our attention. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says something really interesting there. He says this. We felt, the leaders of the church, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. What's Paul talking about there? Paul is talking about being in a situation, this specific, he's been in many of these, by the way, but to the church at Corinth, he's talking about being this, in this situation where the church leaders uh, had, had received this, this death sentence. Basically, um, you're going to be in prison and you're going to get a day for death. Okay? 
And this is likely a situation that none of us here in this room have ever been in, even listening online. Good chance that that's never been the case. But then listen to how Paul interprets this persecution, this suffering, this death sentence. He says, but that, that situation, that death sentence was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's saying, one of the reasons that God brought this struggle into my life, this severe situation, by the way, by the way, not a, not a situation he deserved, not a situation, not a death sentence because of his sin, because of other people's sins, because of their lack of understanding of the gospel. That severe situation, he says, was to help me and to help us as church leaders to root out our self-dependency. That's what he says. You see that there? He says, this was meant to get my attention, church, to my tendency to rely on my own strengths, to rely on myself. And so, and so listen, oftentimes, God uses our suffering he uses our brokenness, whether it's about our sin or the world's sin. He uses struggles in our lives to weed out our self-reliant hearts. See, for all of, our, all of us here, every single one of us here in this room, this is true. Our hearts, by nature and choice, tend to be hard-hearted and calloused towards the things of God and God himself. And so there are times when God brings in situations and allows certain, certain circumstances to come into our lives to soften our hearts, to break down those calluses so that we will ultimately see him and him alone. So to tie a bow around this, if you will, put a cap on it. We might not know if the brokenness in our lives is due to our sin. We won't always know the answer to that question. But there is so much truth that we do know about the difficulties that we face in our daily lives. And that, those truths, should be the center of our attention and our focus. We know that in Christ, we're not being punished. We know that in Christ, God is using all our situations for our good and for our deepest joy. We know, and we know it in Christ, he uses our struggles to help us root out our self-reliance and grow in our dependency on him and him alone. And so what that means is if you are here today, if you're here today listening to these words, what that means, maybe you're here today, you've lost a family member. Maybe you're here, you have a chronic illness. You're struggling with depression. You've been sinned against deeply. Maybe you've suffered abuse. Maybe you've gone through or going through divorce. Maybe you've gone through seasons of, of deep questioning and, and isolation. Now, some of you don't know this about me, 
Um, when I was a teenager, I spent a short time, not too long, thankfully, but I spent a short time in a, in a mental hospital, um, totally locked down. They took everything from me, stripped me naked. So shameful. I wasn't even allowed to have a toothbrush on suicide watch. I was in and out of five and a half, I'll say, five and a half different high schools in my life. So anxious, so depressed, so purposeless. Question, God, why? Where are you? There's no way you can exist for all this to be happening to me. So angry. Dropped out of high school when I was 18 years old. Suffered so much brokenness in my life. But listen, if, if you're in there, in that camp, if you're in Christ today, struggling, broken, you can know for certain that God is not punishing you. He's not punishing you. God is not waiting for you to pay back your sins. He's not looking for you to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, and fix yourself, put yourself back together. He's not waiting for you to reach a certain level of holiness before he re-engages you. If you truly believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, he is with you. And listen, what I have found in my own life and in, in people around me through over a decade now of pastoral counseling is if you don't believe those truths, if you believe that God is against you, if you believe that God has, even for a moment, turned his back on you, if you believe that God isn't pleased with you, you and I will not go to him. We will not run to him because we're not going to run to someone we think is punishing us. We won't. And that's why the enemy uses those lies. He plants those lies in our hearts and in our minds amidst our pain, amidst our suffering, amidst our brokenness. God doesn't love you. He doesn't really have a plan for you. Look what you've done. How could he ever love someone like you? Look at your neighbor. Look at all that he has. See, if you're just like him or her. We'll never go to God if we believe he's that kind of God. The enemy uses that. He uses our brokenness so that we stay away from the one who can actually heal us and actually restore us. Hear me. Seasons of brokenness. Every single time your brokenness is meant to draw you close to the Father, to the one who is full of grace and unending mercy. Lamentations show, shows us this so deeply. It tells us that everything that we tend to lean on for help and hope in this life fails every single time. Not our culture, not human leaders, Please don't look at me. Please. Not other people and places. Not a job. Not money. 
No other relationship in your life, as good as that relationship might be, there is no lasting hope found there. So depend on Jesus. Lean on Christ. Remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus has taken the cup. Imagine this with me. This, this cup filled with the wrath and, and fury of God because of our sin. And, and we, we should be made to drink, to drink of that cup, to suffer through drinking that cup. We should be forced to drink in that wrath. But what does the Father do? He actually chooses to hand that cup to his son, Jesus. Picture this with me. It's so heavy, that cup. It's too overwhelming to take and and to bear. So much so, so much so that Jesus himself, the perfect son of God, actually laments. He laments over this cup of God's wrath. He's in in prayer, and he cries out to God the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Please. And what happens? What happens? Well, we know it was God's will and plan for Jesus to go to the cross to drink that cup, to die in our place. And he drank, we know, praise God, Jesus chose to drink the entire cup, the whole thing down to the very last drop so that there is nothing left for us to drink. There's no wrath left for those who are his. Why? Because of his incredible mercy. He drank that cup. He died for us to forgive us, to make a way for there to be no more condemnation, to provide us with opportunity for deep and lasting joy and to move our hearts so that we will once again, or maybe for the very first time, lean on him and him alone. And so today, are you burdened? Today, are you struggling at all? Are you facing a season of brokenness in your, in your life? Let me encourage you to do something that the culture will never tell you to do. Embrace your brokenness. Embrace it. Believing that your brokenness is actually leading you to the mercy of the Lord. And then go to him. Go to him. Matthew 11 gives us Jesus gives us this great invitation. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That means burden, weighing down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can rightfully say today that there is beauty, there is actually beauty in our brokenness. Why? Why? Because brokenness leads us to mercy. Because brokenness leads us to the restorer. 
Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for you.